I think that people realise something that we potentially took for granted um, can be so easily and so quickly taken away from us that all of those wonderful social experiences that we had and being able to catch up with friends outside of your own home, um, I think that I think that moving forward that hopefully people are really just quite grateful for that. We remember the time when we couldn't um, and we're grateful for the times when we can. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Close the doors, switch to takeaway, open again with restrictions, follow strict hygiene rules, police all those stepping out of line. The pressures on a restaurant manager to operate during the pandemic are pushing the human hospitality traits of looking after people to their limit. How do you weather the storm, keep the team motivated and provide an experience that keeps your staff and customers safe? and keeps money coming in, and maintains your brand identity too. Brooke Addy is the venue manager of Coogee Wine Room. Brooke, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Huck. How are you? I'm good. What's this um, period of time been like for you over the last couple of months? Oh, goodness. It's it's crazy, really. It's, it's almost difficult to remember March. Um, it just feels like a bit of a blur, really. Um, yeah, we uh, and again, I think probably from late February we almost saw the the writing on the wall, but it just it all happened so quickly, and then it bounced back as quickly as ever, really. I think the last time I saw you, it's when I was a restaurant critic and I came in to have a bite to eat, and it was the, it was the early days of your venue, and then you blossomed um, over that um, the next couple of months, and then a pandemic comes along. But, um, how did it feel at the beginning there after, you know, launching a new venue and getting the wheels in motion only for a global pandemic to occur? Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. We opened back in September and, as you said, we got some, uh, I guess, really great feedback from from critics and the likes of yourself and even more so from our, our locals and our regulars and um, had about six months or so under our belt. Um, and then, yeah, March rolled around and I guess we'd been – paying attention to what had been happening overseas and sort of, I guess, preempted something similar happening in Australia. Um, I think we met maybe two or three weeks before the official shutdown um, and started talking about what we would do if trade dropped off or if things changed for us. Do we go to takeaway? We put sanitizer on the floor and started being, I guess, more proactive in terms of our cleaning and quite visible to our guests. Um, yeah, had got the kitchen sort of planning a, a takeaway menu ready to roll out to guests that were working from home or doing whatever. So I guess throw it around all sorts of different options. Um, and then the week of the, the gradual close, again, Tuesday and Wednesday for us were still really solid, even busier than normal. I think people sort of maybe getting out before they knew they wouldn't be allowed to anymore or a few a few people working from home that four o'clock would roll around, they're like, we need a drink, we need to get out. Um, so popping into the bar for an afternoon beverage and things. And then I actually, um, I was booked to go home to Adelaide that weekend. Um, so the weekend when the, the, when the real announcements sort of came out, um, I was not even in the not even in the venue. Unfortunately, my team did an incredible job 
adjusting uh, to one per four square metres and moving tables and the rest of it. We're sitting there on FaceTime and Zoom calls of rearranging furniture and getting floor plans out and making changes and things. And then um, I remember sitting at home on the Sunday night when the PM announced um, that from Monday we would be closed officially and I'm sitting on the couch with uh, my mum and my dad and my sister and her husband. It almost felt like a scene out of um, Years and Years, that show on Netflix of like all of us <laughs> sitting around watching this big announcement from the PM that like the world's about to end. Um, and, uh, yeah, got on a f- flight the next morning at like 6am to head back to Sydney to be like, all right, do I have a job? Like <laughs> what, what, what happens next? Um, so, yeah, it was, it was all pretty surreal, like the – that week when we were closed, we kind of like we all met at the venue on that Monday morning, the two owners and the head chef and myself, and we're like, all right, do we think that takeaway is actually going to be an option for us? We're like, we're a wine bar. Will people really think about us as a as an option for dinner? Like, I don't know, do we have to jump on the platforms and is our food really the right offering? Do we then pivot the menu and go to something completely different as a food offering? Does that change who we are? And it just all sort of we were like, all right, let's just stop, sit for a week, like go and sort of process it. I think we were still in shock probably for the first couple of days. Um, and, again, expecting that the venue was going to be shut for six months. We're like, all right, cool, we'll empty out the call room and pack up little boxes of food for all of the staff and all of our casual staff in particular, That, but none of them ca- covered um, under JobKeeper. So, thankfully, our full-timers were, but by that stage we – we weren't really sure what that, – that, that announcement hadn't come through yet. So even as they were coming in to collect their last tip packets, giving them the open bottles of wine or pre-batched cocktails for them to take home with them to be like, hey, here's a little something to say thank you. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we, uh, we, were, we were pretty lucky actually in the end. I think we were closed for about nine weeks all up um, before the announcement that we could be – back open in about four or five days with 10 covers and it was then all hands on deck to as far as the the senior staff and the management team to get the venue ready for those sorts of numbers. Could you take us through the sort of responsibilities that you have as a, as a venue manager and then, you know, the circumstances that you're in now and how they, they differ and the challenges that you have running a venue with restrictions? Yeah, look, it was definitely, um, I think I've learned a lot during this process, um, even at the start, obviously looking at all of the, the different hygiene requirements and what we needed to do to keep our staff and our guests safe back before the close and even more so being on top of the changes as they roll in and having sometimes merely hours to react to an announcement and what changes needed to be put in place, whether that's hygiene or spacing between tables or record keeping and the like um we definitely had to make some tough calls and some hard decisions and of not bringing our whole team back from before the close um even now with our increase in capacity and numbers we're running it mainly with our management team two in the kitchen and two that we have on the floor um and I think that that will probably stay that way for a while but even then looking at the looking at the P&L of the business and making a decision in terms of we'd, we'd flagged things like bringing our social media and some of our sort of like IT management in venue um, and that was sort of like, all right, we, we don't have the luxury now of 
paying somebody else to do all of that for us. We've got to, we've got to do it. And so we've got to learn about MailChimp and how to send an EDM out and uh, (laughs) all sorts of things, putting QR codes onto menus so that people can scan our full wine list rather than having the hard copy out on the floor. So for the the technologically challenged like myself, I've um, (laughs) definitely faced a few hurdles and Googled lots and made some phone calls to people that are far more talented in that field than I am. Um, But, yeah, the role I think is definitely broader now than what it was three or four months ago in terms of responsibilities and understanding more about the business and paying more attention, I think, to every decision that we make financially and staffing-wise and whether we, I know, at the moment we rent 280 square metres. So it's like do we put 70 seats in or do we make the sensible decision and still keep some of that spacing and only go to 60 and what's the – what's the best decision for our team and our guests to not overcram the space and to still keep people a little bit more dispersed than what we technically could if we, if we wanted to um, push the boundaries a little bit but also at the same time making the responsible decisions in that respect. What was the personal impact on you over that nine-week period that you were closed? Uh it was really tough, actually. I was, um, I've, I've never had that period of time to stop and sit at home. Um, and it definitely didn't suit me. Um, it took me a, probably took me almost two months, I'd say, to find a new routine and to, there were definitely some, some better days than others and some days where I really didn't look after myself at all. Um, and it's, it's been a really eye opening experience, I think, in that respect for myself. Um, in terms of if I want to be the best for both myself and for my team and for my venue, I need to make sure that I'm looking after myself first. Um, And I think that's definitely changed the way that we look at things as we gradually reopen as well in terms of understanding that about myself and then also making sure that the same thing is uh, happens for my team um, and that our assistant managers and our chefs and things get that balance right because um, it was something probably that we weren't doing and I know that I, I personally have never really done well for myself. You all just throw yourself into work and this hospitality industry, if, if you need an extra shift or you need an extra hour, you just do it without really thinking about it. Um, so I think that, yeah, it was it was a really tough time to sort of stop and not have a purpose. I think that's something that's always driven me um, quite heavily in my career is having a purpose and having a, a focus and losing that overnight was was really tough. What are some of the changes that you implemented, you know, given that experience and um, that change that you felt in yourself uh, with the way that you work and also within the business? Um, definitely finding something to do in my day that's not just work. So whether that's, I don't know, going for a run or getting back into Pilates again or just reading a book or something in the morning, um, before work, I think has been a real uh, something that's achieving something personally rather than just professionally every day. Um, And then pushing that in the team as well. Like I know that my assistant manager is really into her gym and her fitness and things as well. So making sure that we've all got the time and the hours in our day and therefore not necessarily so many hours in the roster where that that balance can happen because I think that's really important. 
one of the things that I really enjoyed the time that I was there was the the wine list that you put together. And I remember talking to you about uh, how you put that together and the experience that it was for you. Can, can you tell us a bit about what you're doing there with the wine program? Yeah, look, it's again, it's been a really interesting process for us through that. Um, we had grown that list to quite an extensive collection of wines. I think before the close, we were probably at 460 bottles on the list and probably close to 30 wines by the glass. Wow. Um, yeah, Brooke had gone a little bit trigger happy perhaps um, and sort of <laughs> if I tasted a wine and liked it, I just ordered it and put it on the list and we'd figure out when it sold eventually. So we opened um, and back when we could only have 10 people in the venue at a time, we made a really conscious decision that we would a not order anything else but just pour the wines that we've got and work through some of the stock and maybe make some decisions in terms of what had sold well in the lead up um and in the first six months and what wines we probably I don't know had too much of um so poured through a lot of stock um made a few strategic strategic changes to the content of the list so I think moving forward while we may not have as many wines on the list that breadth and that representation of wines of the world, which is something that we've always focused on, that will definitely always stay. We wanted someone to come in that loves Shiraz and potentially indulge in something from, I don't know, South America or from the States or from a region that they hadn't really tried before. Um, and we still want to give people that opportunity and we're having a lot of fun with the wines by the glass at the moment, getting to pour some of the things that we've got. So we're pouring a Pinot Meunier instead of a Pinot Noir and we've had um, some incredible uh, right bank Bordeaux on by the glass just because I've got six bottles of it and we think we should only have three so let's just pour through a few bottles and see what happens. Um, so that's been really fun both for myself and for the team as well, getting to crack some wines and taste some wines that have been sitting on the shelf for a little while. What's some of the challenges and joy of educating consumers about new wines in the way that you do? Oh, I think that I think that that sharing is something that we love in this industry. If you're front of house, you the, the the joy of seeing someone indulge in something that they may not have tasted before, a flavor combination from a dish, or as you said, a wine from a different region. Um, like using the Pinot Meunier as a perfect example, it's so exciting to have someone inquire about is that a blend of Pinot and something else, and getting to have the conversation with them about this grape varietal that they're probably actually really familiar with because they drink it in champagne all the time but it's usually just blended away and that you can actually make really great still wines from it it just doesn't happen very often but those that do use it and they use it really well and it's a really delicious grape varietal knowing that then they've I don't know gone away and hunted it down and found it somewhere else and then can come back in and share that second experience with you again it's um yeah it's it's something that's so unique in particular to our industry um, and it's kind of why we do what we do, that, that sharing of people's experiences and being able to give them a unique experience. You've worked for some highly influential operators like Matt Moran and the Bentley Boys, um, but you also won Young Waiter of the Year in, I think, 2015. What, what was that experience like and how important was an award like that for someone of your profession? Uh, oh, look, that experience is still – I credit the Appetite for Excellence program with those other experiences that you mentioned in terms of working for the Bentley boys and working with Matt. I um, 
I probably wouldn't be in Sydney today if it hadn't have been for that program. I was really, really lucky in terms of the opportunities that I've had um, and the networking that it offers and also just I think a confidence booster as well. Like I'd worked in hospitality in Adelaide for close to eight years or seven and a half years um, before I entered the program for the first time and I remember flying up to Sydney and just being in a room with these staff that worked at um, like Momofuku and Key and Bray and these incredible restaurants. I don't know, I read my Gourmet Traveller magazine and read about them but had never had an opportunity to experience them, let alone meet these people and be considered in in the same vein as them. Um, so it was, it was huge. I think I walked into the room having very much a, a bit of a small town syndrome um, and it was a huge confidence booster for me to know that I had a skill set that was comparable to these incredible and to the staff at these incredible venues. Um, and then, yeah, to come and see a different side of the industry, um, obviously in a, in a bigger city like Sydney and to work at venues like Bentley where there was degustation and a la carte and some incredible wines sold and to learn from the likes of Nick Hildebrandt and then to work at institutions like Chiswick um, and to see Matt's cooking and to... I guess to see a face that you know so well, but also just to know as well that he's just, he's so such a lovely person to work with and cares about his staff and his team and his venues um, was just, yeah, it's been an incredible opportunity. I highly recommend the program to anybody that has the opportunity or is even inclined just to challenge themselves really. One of the challenges for the front of house profession is that perception in society that, that it's not a proper career um, and yet, there's people like you, professionals carving out an amazing career. You know, what 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 are the sort of challenges and hurdles? Do you think they are into changing that perception and and creating clear paths um, for careers in in the front of house? Um, I think finding managers and leaders within the industry that you want to work with was really important to me. Like I've worked, like even back in Adelaide, Maria at Chianti is just so incredible at what she does and she's still on the floor and still makes that venue what it is today. And then obviously the likes of Nick Hildebrandt in Bentley and in those four venues now as well is just an incredible role model for people. Um, I think as well, like, it's it's slightly disheartening to see, I think, and especially obviously with everything that's happened recently, there's a number of, I know, front of house hospitality professionals that I've spoken to recently that begin to second guess things in and obviously taking stock of the hours that you work and the guests that we serve and while most of them are incredibly grateful there are the ones that are challenging and that make you sort of second guess some of your life choices um to end up in that position um I just I I hope that that our love of good people and good food and good wine can hopefully outweigh the negative um but also as well I was like I just hope that guests moving forward just remember what it was like the first time you got to walk back into a hospitality venue again like I, that, our first couple of weeks of being open everyone was just so grateful to be out um and to have someone else pour their wine and to sit at somebody else's table um and have someone else do the dishes after you but um I just I really hope that that relationship with front of house staff and an appreciation for what they contribute to an experience I think that obviously a lot of the at home dining experiences meant that you could sometimes have that restaurant quality food 
in your house, which is a super exciting and a unique opportunity, but you still had to serve it and you didn't have somebody else to explain it to you when it was put in front of you or to recommend the right wine to go with it. So I think that I hope that what has come out of this is a greater appreciation for what front of house staff contribute to a food and wine experience. Um, And hopefully that means that with a little level of appreciation and love for what we do, hopefully that will mean that more people will stay and stick with it. There's always uh, challenges in the front of house and particularly that old theory that the customer is always right. How, how do you approach a, a difficult customer um, on a busy evening? Um, it's always a challenge. I think <laughs> my, there's, a, there's a level of patience um, and a level of humility that comes from our side of, of things. Um, obviously, you never want to embarrass a person um, and never want to make them feel unwelcome in what is effectively your home. Um, I think we have the, the incredible position to be in to educate our guests um, but in a friendly and manner and with a smile and offering an alternative or an option beyond what they're expecting um, is always a nice way of doing things. Um, and also I think as well, like I've had a couple of interactions even recently where you have the, had those moments and you've had to have those conversations, but people walk away from it almost grateful for the way that it was handled. I think thanking somebody for an opportunity to learn something new or to try something different or to have a different experience, um, thanking them for their feedback. I think obviously like, I know negative feedback is always a really difficult thing to hear, but as long as it's constructive, um, it can actually benefit the business. Or I think at the moment as well, being honest with people and explaining that the situation that we're in at the moment, while it might be, I know, people calling it post-COVID, it's it's not yet. And we've still got, I know, two dinner sittings even on a Tuesday night. We're not taking 7 and 7.30 reservations anymore because we need to have people through the space and we need to turn that table and unfortunately a timing on your dinner reservation even on a Tuesday night is a necessity for us to make sure that we're still here next week and next month and next year um, but I think having those sorts of honest conversations with our guests at the moment it, this is the time this is the chance for us to have them when we've got a reason for it um, and a reason that they can still see and understand in the media there's often stories about how chefs fell in love with food when they were younger and that's how they got into cooking and, you know, stories kind of like that. But how did, how did you start and uh, start a career in the front of house? Um, a bit of sheer luck. I, I, I have to say I'm incredibly blessed. My parents um, ran restaurants back in Adelaide for 30 or so years. So I grew up as the, the kid in the porticot in the office and then the child or the young baby crawling around on the floor and <laughs> being passed around the regulars at restaurants while mum and dad worked service and things like that. So um, I'm convinced it's in my blood. But um, I, I was lucky enough when I was about, oh, I think I just turned 17 um, and reached out to Maria at Chianti. Um, I was looking for a, a part-time job through school. Um, and so started working there a couple of nights a week, just running food for 12 months, couldn't touch any alcohol as an underager. So I just ran, ran food to tables and got to know the kitchen. And, um, then after school, I went off and 
did a law degree um, and was going to be a corporate mergers and acquisitions lawyer and uh, join that side of things. And it was only when I started doing my clerkships and actually, I don't know, getting a first-hand experience in, in that industry that I realised I didn't really want to do that. Um, and not knowing what I wanted to do at the same time, Chianti was looking for a restaurant manager because ours had left. Um, and so I remember turning around to Frank and Maria, they'd sort of asked if I could pick up some extra shifts and help out a little bit while they figured out what their next step was. And I was like, well, look, I think I can do you one better. Um, I can probably like help out a little bit more and sort of start hosting services and help out with the wine list. And again, I remember... (laughs) Maria taught me this really great lesson. It was um, she had to write the roster for the first time because it was what the restaurant manager used to do. And so she sent me upstairs back in the day when we had like a pencil availability and an Excel spreadsheet for a roster. And she sent me upstairs into the office and was like, hey, can you just um, punch in all of the, 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 the staff that have got regular rosters? Can you just punch all of those regular rosters in? And I was like, yep, cool. No worries. Did that. Came back downstairs. And then um, she was like, all right, that looks great. Can you um, fill in like some of the functions and things like that we've got and sort of make sure, like, put a, put a few people on the roster and just see how it looks. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool, no worries. Came back downstairs, I was like, all right, done that. And she's like, okay, um, filled in all of, have you filled in all of the gaps? And I was like, oh, there's a couple. And she's like, oh, we'll just go and put a name in them for now and then I'll go upstairs and I'll finish it off. And I was like, okay, cool. Came back downstairs. She's like, all right, are you happy with it? And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you've just written the roster so you can do that every week. And I was like, <laughs> okay, like, <laughs> That was, that was an interesting process, but sure, like that makes sense. Um, and so, yeah, I think that I just kind of fell into it that way. And I think I've realized that like I've always loved food and wine and hospitality and always loved going out and having really great dining experiences and getting to know the staff and what they do and why they do it. And so it kind of all just flowed from there really. And I spent, as I said, almost eight years working with Frank and Maria at Chianti and having a, a ball of a time until it was sort of a little bit of, an, an opportunity to step out of my comfort zone and head to Sydney Rose. It's your role to make people's evenings in restaurants, but what are some of your favourite dining experiences that you've had? Um, uh, look, I um, in terms of dining in Australia, I think that Bray was one of my all-time favourites. Um, a combination of just incredible food, beautiful space, just a level of simplicity and understatedness. There's just no ego about that venue and what it offers. It's just incredible and it speaks for itself. Um, And then I also treated myself in 2017 to uh, two weeks in New York um, where I went above and beyond and a little bit crazy in terms of my dining experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're only there once, so uh, well, certainly at the moment anyway. Um, so I ended up um, at Per Se and that was like they treat that dining room almost like a stage. It's just incredible watching like, the staff never double back on the floor and they've got like wings almost it feels like that they just sort of like they're there and then they're gone. Um, and then also I got, I ate at 11 Madison park the week that they reopened. Um, I snuck in a spot at the bar, um, on a Thursday night and I loved it so much. I went back for Sunday lunch before I flew out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but even in that experience there, the staff, um, sitting at the bar the first night, the, the gentleman that looked after me just knew everything and was just so much fun to interact with and then happened to be the same person on 
the second time that I was there. And they, the way that they'd structured their menu at the time was that it was just five courses at the bar. Three of them were set and two of them you had a choice for. Um, but knowing that it was my second time back in the week, he went and spoke to the kitchen and even the three set dishes, they changed for me. So I got to try a set of five different dishes the second time I went back, which is just one of those things that like you don't have to do at all. Like I knew what I was signing on for, but just to go above and beyond like that was just something so unique. And again, it's one of those moments that you take that learning experience with you moving forward and you turn around and go, if the situation were to arise in one of my venues, I would hope that I would be able to do something similar for someone. Now you've been open for a little bit now with, and there's still restrictions, but is, has the restaurant changed uh, since what you were doing before the pandemic? Yeah, look, certainly. We, I think, I think this is a great opportunity. You have to take the positive in everything. And we, um, having been open for about six months before everything happened, it's not very often when you open a new venue or open a new business that you get to stop after six months and reassess where we were at and what had worked really well for us in the first six months and then what perhaps we could we think we could do better or certainly more efficiently. Um, and that's come down to a lot of our decision-making is what's a more efficient way of going about things. Um, so even from a, from a food perspective, the menu is much shorter, um, changing dishes more frequently so that it's still interesting for people but so that we can pump that food out with less people in the kitchen and less labour attached to it. Uh, and the same thing in the front of house as well. Um, ha- rather than having, I don't know, six house cocktails plus all of the classics, it's like do we really need house cocktails or can we just do the classics in a shorter list of those really well still pre-batch as much as we can and then do we need a bartender or can we run the service without that? So we've gone from having, again, when we could have 96 people in the venue, we would have had maybe nine staff on a Saturday night. Now we've got a capacity of 62 people in the venue. So we're still a two thirds of it in, but we've only got four staff on the floor on a Saturday night. Um, so yeah, we've, we've definitely rethought a lot of what we did before. Um, and again, reducing the, the number of wines on the wine list, but hopefully adding and changing things more frequently um, to keep it interesting for for our guests that come back on a regular basis. With the restrictions still in place, how have your guests handled the transition to this new world of dining? Uh, For the most part, really well. I think that um, for the most part, everyone's really informed about what venues can and can't do um, and incredibly understanding. Obviously, we still have, especially back when we could only have 10 people, we had a, a, a few people wandering past the venue, a little bit frustrated that we wouldn't break the walls and go to 12 or to seat a few extra people and things like that when other venues in the area were doing that, um, which became a little bit frustrating. But at the same time, we wanted to stick to our guns and to do the right thing um, by both our staff and our customers and the state and the country. Um, but, again, you, the the timing restrictions that we've had to put in place and to turn tables and to not have 7 o'clock bookings midweek like we would have always done I think that people that want to come out and want to design, to dine and want to support their local businesses and that's where we're in a beautiful position there that we that we are local and that we have a community that fell in love with us quite quickly and want us to succeed. So they're all very happy to to accommodate those new requirements to make sure that we are around for summer and that that might mean that you 
can only get a four o'clock table or you can get a six o'clock table, but we need it back by 7.30. Um, and also people are, I think people are planning their nights better. The idea of, um, I guess, spontaneity on the weekends is probably something that's a little bit more of a luxury at the moment or, or more near impossible. Um, but people in our area in particular that are booking for drinks at the pavilion and then coming to us for dinner or drinks later somewhere else and sort of making a night in a in an area and in a suburban area, which is just great for everybody, I think, in the in our area and in um, in the suburbs that you have that I guess camaraderie between local venues. With what's happened in Melbourne with the lockdown and a few cases sort of popping up in New South Wales, how are you feeling about the next couple of months? Uh, look, as I think you could sit and dwell and fear that we're going to be forced back into a lockdown again. Um, I, I have fingers and toes and everything else crossed that that won't happen for us. But I think for for right now the only thing that we can do is just to continue doing the right thing in our venue um, and that's taking everybody's details and making sure that the spacing is right and making sure that the hygiene is above and beyond, um, keeping the morale up within our team um, and the staff that we have been able to bring on board that are only getting two shifts a week, just sort of keeping those two shifts as fun and as energetic as possible. Um, And, yeah, I think that with the way that things have been changing and happening so quickly I think that you almost you, you can't plan for the next step because we really just don't know what that next step is we, tr- we tried to do that at the start and we went from planning our 10 person capacity to planning our 20 person capacity and we skipped that and went straight to 50 and you're like all right I don't have a floor plan ready for that but like we can do that quickly let's go bring back the furniture um so yeah I think that for right now we just take it one service at a time and one day at a time and um We've definitely become very quick at responding to to change and just to being agile and ready to go. So, Brooke, what are the positives to come out of this and what are you hopeful for in the future with the industry? Um, look, I think it's definitely shown how resilient our industry can be. I think it was, it was so amazing to sit and watch um, – some of the leaders of our of our businesses and s- smaller guys and bigger guys um, jump onto some really creative um, and ingenious ways to keep their businesses moving forward um, and keep their staff employed. Uh, and I think it just shows as a, as a team and as a as a unit and as a community um, how strong and capable we are when when push comes to shove and when we have to be. Um, and I really hope that. I think for the broader community um, and for our guests that I think they're coming out now with a new sense of appreciation for, for what we do um, and for what our industry contributes to, to their day-to-day lives and not just to their special occasions but to, to their nights and to their weekends off and to have somebody else cook your food for you or to recommend a wine or to pour something or to bring out the candle for your birthday celebration or to wish you happy anniversary. Um, I think that, I think that people realize something that we just took as, as an everyday thing and something that we potentially took for granted, um, can be so easily and so quickly taken away from us. Um, that all of those wonderful social experiences that we had and being able to catch up with friends 
outside of your own home. Um, I think that I think that moving forward, that hopefully people are really just quite grateful for that. We remember the time when we couldn't, um, and we're grateful for the times when we can. Well, Brooke, you're an amazing example of why there are clear career paths in the front of house in hospitality, and it's been amazing talking to you. Uh, please keep in touch and let us know what goes on down the track with Coogee Wine Room and yourself, but really appreciate the chat today. Thanks so much for your time, Huck, and thanks for the podcast as well. It's been really great to see and to hear from, um, I know, some of those people that we all look up to in the industry, um, to hear what they've been doing and their opinions on things and to stay so informed. So thank you um, for going out of your way to do that. Awesome. Talk soon. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks, Huck. Bye. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>